where I am very refreshed and relaxed. Well, not very. I'm kind of refreshed and relaxed. I got a chance to get up to the mountains yesterday and camp out and do some fishing. Didn't break any of my vehicles this week, so that's always a plus. You know, we were, we were going uh, two and eight days was pretty good there, so uh, uh, praise God that we're up and running now. Um, so today we're going to go ahead and continue on in our series on the book of Romans. So we are on Romans chapter 8. There was some confusion last week when I said we're in, we're in I'm sorry, not chapter 8, Romans uh, part 8. We started in chapter 4. The parts don't match up to the chapters. So right now we're going about two parts per chapter. So this is the second half of chapter 4 that we're going to go through today. And I've entitled it Promise to Abraham. Because last week we looked at how faith has always been the method with which man was justified before God. We read that Abraham was justified before God and it was counted to him as righteous. Why? Because he believed. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we looked at that no one could say that, oh no, righteousness is, is only because the law. We, no, we, get, the, we get righteousness from the law. We, we follow the law and that's how we become righteous because if that were the case, then how could Abraham have been considered righteous at all because the law hadn't been given when Abraham was around? And then they could say, okay, well, maybe it wasn't because of the law. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, Abraham got a pass because the law wasn't there yet. He couldn't hold, hold him to the standards of the law because the law hadn't been given. But then, then Paul says, well, what about David? David says that it's not sacrifice that you desire. And he said, blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. That's what David said. And this is an interesting phrase because David, one, had just gotten out of a, of a stupid decision. How many of you guys are thankful that God still loves us when we make dumb, stupid decisions? So David had just went and slept with another man's wife. But if that wasn't the worst of it, he gets her pregnant. So now he's in a mess because now she's pregnant. The husband is out fighting a war for me. He's one of my generals. He's out fighting a war. Now people are going to know. So I know I'm going to go ahead and, and, and call in the armies so that way he can, he can sleep with his own wife and there won't be an issue. But then he goes and realizes that this guy is not staying with his wife. And he says, why aren't you staying with your wife? And he says, well, I'm not going to come in and, and enjoy these, these pleasures and, and being home and being with my wife and the rest of my guys can't. So now he goes back out to war. Now David's another conundrum because his plan didn't work. So what he did is he sets the guy up to get killed. So David's committed adultery, and then he's committed murder. And there is no sacrifice for these things according to the law. If you commit adultery to be stoned to death, there is no sacrifice. There is nothing that you can do to be forgiven of that. So David says, blessed is the man whose sins are counted against him. So the question is, how is it that, that David can speak of somebody whose sins are not counted against them if there is a law, and the law was obviously transgressed? Because the reality that he says that his sins weren't counted against him means that sins were committed. We can't say, oh no, he followed the law perfectly, because if he followed the law perfectly, there'd be no sins to be not counted against him. So now we have David saying that, that there is a way to salvation that is not the same as following the law, because if you have sins, then you're obviously not right according to the law. So we know it's not according to the law when it was given. We know it's not according to the law when it wasn't given. So how is righteousness imbued upon a person? And that is by faith alone, by believing in God. If, law doesn't, if, if faith doesn't come by the law, 
sorry, not faith, if righteousness does not come by the law, then it has to be attained in some other way. And we learned that it is by faith. And then today we're going to take a look at what that promise is that was received by faith to those promised to Abraham. We're going to look at what was promised to Abraham, and Paul's going to dive in a little bit more and really hammer home the point and evaluate whether Abraham received his promise by works, works of the law, or if he received it by faith. So let's go ahead and bow our heads as we come to the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we can spend in your presence. Holy Spirit, I pray that our hearts are ready to receive the words that we're going to receive this morning. Prepare our hearts, Father. If there are any scales in front of our eyes, have them be dropped down. Let us see clearly. Let us see the truth, Father. Let us have a revelation of your word this morning, Father. I pray that when we leave today, that there is no longer any confusion, that there's no longer any, any uh, uh, misunderstanding that we don't leave here thinking the Lord works in mysterious ways because your word makes your ways plain, Father. Give us revelation, Father, not just an intellectual knowledge, but revelation of what we're going to be going over today. Speak to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's go ahead and get started. Can you go to the next one for me? So we are going to read in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and its promise is void. So let's take a step back and let's talk about the promise that we're talking about. So what, we're talk, what Paul's talking about is when God promised Abraham the land. And if you remember in Genesis 13, 14 through 15, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for the, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And this, this promise right here that, that, that was just made, to Abraham, this, this idea that wherever he looked, that he, the, the land would be his. He says, I will give to you and your offspring and forever. Paul is going to start talking about this is actually a, a promise of faith, not based on his works. And even the promise itself is based in faith. Because God, when he was speaking to Abraham, he wasn't talking about his physical eyes. He wasn't talking about what he could see with his eyes. Could you imagine what that, what that promise actually looks like? I mean, if, if he was talking about his physical eyes, the promise could have been limited by the weather. I mean, I hope it wasn't a, we were just up in the mountains yesterday and I'm looking over these beautiful vistas, except for there's this one vista. I mean, I walk up and from the road, I'm up in the truck and I'm like, this is gorgeous. You can just see forever. So you pull over to the lookout and you stop and there's a wall, you can't get any farther and they just let all the trees grow up. All you can see is trees, no vista. What if that's where, where, where God took? took Abraham. So get him up on the mountain and says, look in every direction. Look this way. You can see pretty far. He looks at just trees. Trees right in the way. God says you can only have until that first tree because you can't see any farther. Or what if it was cloudy and hazy? That was another thing yesterday. I'm up there looking and it's all hazy and and in the mountains in the distance, all you can kind of see is silhouettes. It's midday, but it's hazy and foggy and the dust must have been blowing. I mean, if this was based on his physical eyes, I hope it was a high visibility day. I hope the weather was perfect. There was nothing standing. Because then you get, you know, maximize on the promise of God is what we're thinking here, right? 
But the reality is, is that even when the visibility, visibility is perfect, it's only a few miles that you can, does anybody know how far you can? I think it's around five miles or so you can see with the naked eye if visibility is perfect. Five or six miles. It's not very far. It's, I mean, that's, it's smaller than the city of Marana. God said, you and your offspring can have downtown. It doesn't seem like as grand of a promise as we once might have thought. But the reality is, is even then, God was wanting to, to see with his spiritual eyes and not with his physical eyes. He wanted him to look out in faith. He wanted him to mean that all the lands you can have faith for, not what you can see with your eyes, but what you can imagine in your heart when you trust me. And, and you guys think, Pastor Wayne, you're just reading into this, but truthfully, that the Jewish teachers of the time taught that what God was spoke, speaking about was to mean the entire earth. This is what they taught. This is what they believed. This promise to Abraham wasn't what he could see with his eyes. This meant the entirety of the earth. And this promise was given to, to, to Abraham purely on the basis of grace. Because Abraham had done nothing to deserve it. Really, all Abraham had done when God spoke, he said, yes, Lord, here I am. He, he, he answered, he believed, he trusted what God had said to him. And the reality is, is today it's exactly the same. The promises to God, from God to us, are received purely by believing in his word, not based on the things that we're doing. Before this promise was made to Abraham, we don't hear of any great deeds done by Abraham, any amazing feats that he had accomplished, except for he spoke to and believed God. God justifies the ungodly because they believe in his gracious, gracious promise, not because they obey his law. And I, for one, am so thankful for that because I've broken it way too many times. And I don't have to know your history Know your past. I don't have to know anything about you to know that you've broken it a number of times as well. So rejoice. Thank God that our righteousness comes from believing in Him and not on the things that we've done. The reality is that law was never given to save man. The law was just given to show us how bad we really were. It was to show us that we might actually need a Savior. That's what the Holy Spirit does now today. The Scripture says that the Holy Spirit uh, convicts the world concerning sin. And when it explains that in a, in a couple phrases later, it says that He convicts the world concerning sin, showing that they need a Savior. The point is, is that we have it, and we need a Savior. So Paul is going on here. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he'd be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Basically what he's saying is, is if it was based on faith or based on, uh, on deeds or righteousness of the law, why even mention faith? Why even bring it up if it has nothing to do with it? It has no bearing here. If faith isn't needed, and it has no bearing in this conversation when you read about it in the book of Genesis. He also said, if the law makes you heirs and the promise has no value. If the, if the, if if what makes us heirs of the promise is law, then the promise has no value. What do you think it means by that? Because no one can live up to the demands of the law. It's basically a promise that's given with no hope of ever being kept. It would be like if I went up to you and said, I'll give you $100 if you held your breath for an hour. 
seems like a pretty good deal, $300, except for nobody can hold their breath for an hour. It's a promise that can't be kept. It's a, it's, it's a promise that has no value because it's impossible for it to be kept. So if righteousness was based on the law, if, if this promise was based on the law, it's a promise that has no merit, it has no value because it's a, it's a promise that would be impossible for us to upkeep our end of the bargain. That's why I said, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. A promise that can't be kept. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, for the law brings wrath. You can go to the next one for me. I don't know why this isn't working. He says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is an interesting statement. And when you start thinking about what does this actually mean, the law brings wrath, but if there is no law, there is no transgression. The first thing we need to understand is that the law is actually good. Because many people thought Paul was arguing that the law is bad, the law isn't good for us, we should just throw it out. And Paul's like, no, the law is actually good. We know the law is good. In 1 Timothy 1.8, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So this is Paul speaking. So we know that Paul believes in the law. He believes that it's good. He believes that it was sent by God. Romans 7.12, which we'll read about in a, in, a, in a couple months probably, it says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So now we have a, a weird, uh, uh, it seems like a conflict, because Paul's saying that the law brings wrath, which doesn't seem very good to me, but then he says that the law is good. So if the law is good, then how does it bring wrath? And it's because it points out our failures and it sets the standard. It says you have to be this tall to ride this ride. It's what, it says this is what has to accomplish. This is what has to be accomplished. And the problem that we run into is that there is no sinner that can ever live up to this plumb line. No person on this world that can ever meet this standard. We also find that the law doesn't give life. There is nothing that can help you in the law except for point out what not to do. And it has no power over your flesh. It has no power in your life. The law isn't transforming anybody. It just points out the deficiencies. And then he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What he means is that even if sin exists, when we start talking about the law, even if there is sin, even if it, it does exist, if there are no rules, you can't break them. If there is no law, you can't transgress the law. So he says the, the law brings wrath, but if there is no law, there is no transgression. The, the reality is, is that if the, the law was never been given, we couldn't technically break the law. Now, it doesn't mean sin doesn't exist. How many know that sin existed well before the law was ever given? The problem is the law just pointed out how bad we really were. We thought we were doing okay. And then we realized that we got a long way to go. I've heard people talk about, do we have to have... a, a some supreme authority on morality. And where does that come from? Because people go, well, we don't have to have a God. We don't have to have a supreme authority on morality. You know, people can govern themselves. And there, are, there is some reality, right? I think most people, and we believe it's because it's, it's inwritten in our heart, but most people realize you don't kill, you don't murder, you don't steal. We, we get this stuff. But what about the stuff that's, that's a little more nuanced? Thou shalt not covet. Paul says, 
I wouldn't even known that was a big deal unless the law told me it was. Because we don't innately know stuff like that that we shouldn't be jealous, that we shouldn't covet somebody else's things. We need a, a, a supreme authority on what is moral, what is right, which is why we need a God. We need someone to, to lay down the plumb line, the truth, or otherwise we all do what's right in our own eyes. And that never matches up. We have a, a society right now where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They all decide what is right, what is wrong. And what's interesting to me is none of the rights match up. Because if you don't have a supreme authority, there's no, there's no central rule. And that's what happens with the law, is it actually does give us that standard, that plumb line. We can't transgress the law if it doesn't exist, though. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and to, to lay it out even more, more uh, straightforward, if there's something that I don't want my kids to do, and I don't tell them not to do it, if they do it, I can't really get mad. No, I can get mad. I, can't, I shouldn't act on that anger. <laughs> I shouldn't act on that. But if I lay down the law, if I say, don't put your feet on the bed, and they put their feet on the bed, then it's game on. If I say, you need to ask for stuff, and they don't ask for it, then it's game on. But if I never told them that, if I never told them what the rules were, and they, they acted against them, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a tra uh, uh, an issue. But if I didn't tell them, then they couldn't break the rules. They couldn't transgress the law. So the reality is, is if we want to be completely free from transgression, if we want to be completely free from breaking the rules or breaking the law, we must be removed from under the principle of the law. And we do that by faith. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you get born again, you have Jesus Christ living inside of you, you're made brand new, you're restored to the position that, that Adam was in before the fall, you're perfectly righteous before God. And if you sin, you're still not a transgressor of the law. Because by faith, you have been made righteous. In order to not be transgressors of the law, we have to be removed from underneath the law. And faith is how God set that up for it to happen. And then this is where the Jewish people at the time were kind of stuck in a conundrum. In these days, because they believed that if, if the, the law is what made them an heir. And if the law is what makes one an heir. There can only be one outcome. Because the law demands punishment for infraction. And none can be considered righteous as all have broken the law. There's not a single person except Jesus Christ who ever lived that didn't break the law. But when righteousness is based on faith, there is no broken law. Because all the transgressions were already paid for in Jesus Christ. the only other option to be righteous is to fully follow the law and it's impossible to follow the law the bible says that there is none righteous not one it's an impossibility so in verse 16 and 17 it says this is why it depends on faith in order that the promises rest on grace may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring can you pop to the next one and not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So in order for the promise of salvation and righteousness to be available to all, 
God made it available by faith according to grace. We all know that grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. And it's on the basis that Christ has accomplished everything needed to satisfy God's wrath on the cross. Paul also looks in the scripture in, in Genesis chapter 17 where it says that, that, that Abraham will be the father. I have made you the father of many nations. This is Genesis 17.5 where he makes that promise. And it's an interesting thing that he says there because if being an heir was only for the Jews, then we have something that doesn't quite match up. Because the Jews had the law, and if being an heir only belonged to the Jews, then how could he be a father of many nations if he was just the father of one? The Jews were only one nation. If he was the father, if the, if, if the promise came through the law, then we have a problem. Once again, God's promise is limited by our view of how we think things should work. The reality is, is that the Jewish people of the time, and, and even the ones that today uh, who are not messianic, who don't believe in Jesus, they shouldn't be so offended by the fact that Abraham was righteous by faith and not by the law, but instead there should be rejoicing that salvation is extended to all peoples. Because the truth is, God loves us all. What I also find interesting is that, that particularly the Jewish people who grew up uh, uh, having a relationship with God, they know that He spoke things into existence that did not exist. And He gave life to things that were dead. These are pretty amazing. I mean, if we saw anybody that did that today, we would be just blown away. And the truth is, is I think we should see it more often. The we are, are, somehow we limit what God can do all the time because our faith is not where it should be. And I'm not calling just you guys out because I'm there included. Many times I have to remind myself not to put God in a box. But why was it so hard for them to imagine a God who could justify Jew and Gentile alike when they believed that He spoke the earth into existence? But the reality is, is we can't be that critical about it today. That's one thing we read. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to, to, to read the Word of God and read what's going on, and we, we even get a little judgmental of what they're going through. I can't believe they're so dumb. Why can't they just see that? When we put God in a box all the time, we always tell God what He can and can't do. He's the God who brings to life the dead. He calls things into existence since we're, that are not, and we want to tell Him that uh, uh, we, we can't believe that somebody could get cured from cancer. I've had people tell me before, and I say, let's pray for that. I believe God can do something that's amazing. God can do a miracle, and they'll say, well, I'm a realist. Well, the real reality is, is that God can do something amazing. We try to limit God by our experience and our expectation. The reality is, is that we do a pretty good job of it. Because God's never going to force something on you. He waits for you to trust. He waits for you to believe. And if you don't believe God can do a miracle in your life, the truth is, is you likely won't have a miracle get done in your life. In Romans 4, 18 through 19, it says, And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So we're going to begin to see the evidence of Abraham's faith. 
and we're going to see how he lived that out in his life. Not only does God say he's faithful, but we see in how he lived his life, it demonstrated that he trusted God. We get to see what real faith is because he believed God, he chose to believe God, even when it seemed like the promise was impossible. I mean, can you imagine when God begins to tell Abraham these things, Abram at the time, the opposition that he's facing when he says, you're going to be the father of many nations. He says, look at the, 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 the grains of sand on the beach and look at the stars. If you can even count them, that's going to be your offspring. And he's like, um, I'm going to go with this guy, but I'm kind of old. And so is she. She's not a spring chicken anymore. You see, we also don't think about the position that Abraham actually was in. He was alone. Nobody else believed in God but him. He was the only one. He had no Bible. We have an amazing situation to be in right now where we have the history of God's Word recorded. We have His, his will and His promises written down for us to know. These people were just going on nothing. Nobody else around them believed in God. They were all heathen, and he had a simple promise from God. That's all he had to base everything on. You might say, well, if I heard the audible voice of God, I would believe. Or if I lived back in and saw these miracles, then I would believe. Which isn't true for a couple of reasons. One, historically that's not accurate because you know how many people saw that Jesus was risen from the dead? Not all of them became Christians. Seeing is not believing. You still have to choose to believe. You still have to make the decision. And the truth is, is if we heard the audible voice of God right now, most of us would be looking through the room for a speaker. Pastor Wayne's messing with me. We'd be looking, or we would think, man, I am not eating at that place again. It messed me up. I'm hearing voices. We might make an appointment with a psychiatrist. The truth is, is that if we heard the voice of God today, we would spend almost all of our time trying to explain it away. It's the reason why when you go out and you, you hear stuff like, if, if, if God is God, then, then have Him make this rock float. Prove to me that He's God. God doesn't do parlor tricks like that because it doesn't do anything. If I was out preaching on the street and somebody said, well, if there's a God, make this rock float, and I said, lift and rise, and it rises up, they wouldn't believe there was a God. They would spend the rest of their time trying to prove how I faked it. We don't believe because we see. We have to make a choice to believe. Or we start making excuses. As a matter of fact, I know God's talked to, to any of you that are born again. When he says, go talk to that cashier, tell him about me. Go talk to, that, to that, that gas station attendant. Go talk to your friend. And we start going, oh no, maybe that's the devil telling me to do it because he just wants me to get embarrassed. Well, the devil's never going to tell you to speak to somebody about Jesus. But the reality is, is we, we always try to explain it away. So the good news is, is really you're in a much better place than any of them back there. Because you have all of those things recorded. You have his will for your life recorded we have the new testament we have so much more than they had to go on and we have other believers around us i don't think you realize how how big of a thing that is to have like-minded people around you that can encourage you 
and stand with you. He had nobody. And then for Abraham, being alone in his relationship with God, that's not the only challenge because that's the big picture. Then there's the little stuff. It didn't seem like there was any way that this promise could be accomplished. It didn't seem like he was 100 years old. In case you don't know how biology works out, kids aren't usually in the picture at 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. She couldn't physically, have, she was barren. She couldn't physically have children anymore. This was an impossible situation that he was in. Can you go back one more? I don't know what's going on up there. It says that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, 100 years old, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's woman. You guys are like, man. He doesn't have a whole lot of faith in his wife. He's just throwing her under the bus. She's 100 years old. But the thing is, is, is it wasn't just him. In Genesis 18, 12, Sarah, it says, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out. She didn't have a very good view of herself, but she was 90. She says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, now she's making fun of him. See, get on to her. It wasn't just Abraham. She says, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? She's talking about the kid in case you guys were getting all dirty. And this is what God's response is to her. Says, the Lord said to Abraham, this is Genesis 18, 13-14, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear children now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything too hard for the Lord? But the problem is, is we think there's way too many things that are too hard for the Lord. Most of you guys can't even pray for a headache for healing we've already decided what God can and can't do in our lives. I, I would encourage you, church, let God be God in your life and start trusting Him for things that would just blow your mind away. If it doesn't seem harder than a 100-year-old dude getting a 90-year-old dude pregnant, then just go with it. I mean, we know we can at least do that. I didn't say... Huh? Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're going to have to remove that from the recording. <laughs> But even that's not too hard for God. I just want to tell you that right now. If God wants to do it, He can do it. And praise God. We've got to stop putting God in a box. And the reality is, is that some of you guys are going through hard stuff right now. We, from everything to relationship issues to financial issues to uh, people at work. You guys have all kinds of things going on in your life right now. I want you to know that there's nothing too hard that God can't figure it out, that God can't work it out, that God can't make it better in your life. There's nothing too big or too hard for God that He can't work out. Put your trust in Him. That's actually the key. If you want to get through it, just put your trust in Him. Romans 4, 20-22, which is the next slide, says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the key. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And it had to be God because she was 90 and he was 100. 
says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, no matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties, Abraham trusted God. And I find something interesting what it says here. It says, no unbelief made him waver. Did he have moments of unbelief? Have moments where he questioned? I think maybe he did. Why would they put that no unbelief? If he never had any unbelief, why would it even mention unbelief? He says, no unbelief made him waver. The truth is, is like him, as long as our faith muscle is stronger than our fear or unbelief muscle, we're going to get through. There might be moments when, when things are going to talk back to you and tell you that it's impossible, that, it's, that it can't be done. As long as you choose to believe God, even when they creep up, and I'm well aware that those things creep up. I go through them all the time in my own life, and we have to make a choice. When something looks too difficult or too hard, we can either trust those circumstances or we can trust God. We can either give up or we can trust God. Are you convinced that God is able to do what He promised? Because God has promised so much concerning you. Every Bible and every uh, promise in the Bible. You can read them. And they're for you. Health, wholeness, righteousness, strength, victory. All of those things that they're yours. Even if they weren't written to you, those promises are you because the Bible says that all the promises are yes and amen in Him, in Jesus. When you look at your situation, do you give up in despair? Or do you give glory to God and double down on your faith? Abraham had every reason to doubt, but he didn't. And actually, instead of his faith going cold, it just grew stronger. Because he knew in whom he had believed. And because he didn't doubt, his life reflected that. If you have faith, if you trust God, your life should reflect that. There should be evidence in how you live your life. He moved forward with Sarah. And they had a child. And we find out later in his life, he was even willing to sacrifice his own son because he believed God so much. This is what it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He says, he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which he figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar because God asked him to. And in the last moment, God said no and provided for him a goat in the thicket. But he was willing. What was interesting is, it's like, whatever you need me to do, God, because I know he's not actually dead. You said the promise was through him. He said, you'll bring him back to life or two. Can you imagine having that kind of faith? I think we need to have that kind of faith. This is why James said, faith without works is dead. It's not because your works save you, but it's because if you have faith, your life looks like somebody who has faith. Your life looks like somebody who believes and trusts his God. Works does not, will not, has never saved a person. The law does not, will not, and has never saved a person. But trusting in God will. And the person that puts their faith in God will naturally live out a life where faith has an impact in every aspect of their life. So Paul concludes his illustration about Abraham and said this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because God was able to deliver on his promise because Abraham chose to trust him.
you want God to deliver on promises in your life, trust Him. Live your life like you trust Him. Because righteousness or rightness with God has to do with believing Him and that He'll deliver what He promised. And then we're going to end here in verse 23 and 25. It says, But the words that was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It'll be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So over the last two weeks, we've seen that it was Abraham's faith, that it was credited, right, credited righteousness to his account. But then Paul says, why was this written? Why is this even talked about? Because it really, if it was between him and Abraham, it doesn't have anything to do with us. But God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness was not written for him alone, but it was also for all of us so that we knew the process, so that we could be declared righteous by faith in him. It was not just written so we could honor Abraham and his awesomeness. It was written as instructions for us. It was written so that we might learn how to receive righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. And that's why it was written. This was written for us so that we could know, so that we could have hope, that we would not be in despair, so that we would know that God is a God who can do miracles far greater than we could ever imagine that he could do. It was so that we know to place our faith in Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And when we place our faith in him, just like Abraham, it is counted to us as righteous.